0: Welcome to this episode of Impact Education, LLC's Payer Talk CE program, tackling the clinical, economic, and humanistic burden of atopic dermatitis. My name is Steve Colusi. I am the clinical pharmacy manager at Highmark, and I'm joined today by Ashley Ellis, PharmD, MBA, CDECS. Ashley is a National Eczema Association, or NIA, ambassador. Professionally, she is the Impact Director and Assistant Professor at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Welcome, Ashley.
1: Hi, great to
0: be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really meaningful opportunity for me as well as the listeners to hear directly from somebody in the atopic dermatitis community. Before we get started, I want to let our audience know that this Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by the National Eczema Association, Medical Education Resources, and Impact Education LLC, and is designed for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. The activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and we'd like to thank them for their support. For any logistical or technical questions regarding claiming credit or other issues, please email impacteducation at info at Ashley, I would like to start us off by, you know, just hearing from you a little bit about your role as a patient advocate and your day job as a pharmacist and professor.
1: Yeah, well... In my role at UTHSC, I am in charge of our impact pathway, which is our three-year PharmD pathway. So that's my day job. I, I love doing it. My background, my clinical background really is in primary care, and I've mostly dealt with diabetes, hypertension, and those type of chronic conditions. And so I have not really specialized in dermatology, until my oldest child was born. She's 12 now. So when she was born, she started developing eczema and it kind of got worse and worse. And I had to dig into it, learn more about it. And that's how I got involved with Nia to connect her really to other people who suffered with atopic dermatitis in the way that she did because we didn't really have anybody in our everyday life who were affected the way that she was. Being honest, I did not think that I would learn that much or connect that much when I went to Eczema Expo or when I engaged with Nia, but I actually learned a lot and I made friends. I I made my own community there. And so I was able to connect with the Nia Ambassador Program and to participate in events like this to share our story and spread awareness about how atopic dermatitis affects families, caregivers, and uh, patients as well.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that that introduction, and thank you in advance for, for sharing your and your daughter's story. I think it's always very valuable for uh, the payer community to hear this perspective as well, and so you know, your background is very unique, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how that's impacted your journey um, specifically, but I want to, um, you know, chat a little bit about, you know, the, the journey that your daughter has faced and, you know, that you have kind of gone along for the ride with and helped, you know, take care of her through this time as a pediatric patient with atopic dermatitis.
1: Yeah, so when she was born, we got to about four months old. And she started exhibiting some symptoms of what we, you know, what you would consider typical eczema. She started having some redness, rash around her ankles, around her chin, elbows, that kind of thing. And we really interacted with our pediatrician who, again, in a unique situation is her grandfather. That's my father-in-law. So I was very lucky that we could have very open conversations and frequent conversations with him about it. And we started with just your typical over-the-counter type products. Sometimes it was Neosporin, sometimes it was hydrocortisone and things like that. Um, Lots of moisturizer products. Sometimes we would try to do baths every day. Sometimes you'd spread those out, but as she got a little bit older, scratching, of course, you can't really control that between that age and one to two. So she was scratching and breaking the skin, having blood in her sheets um, from scratching overnight, um, scratching her scalp and things like that. And by the time she was two, we had another baby. So we had a newborn and that's really when it, I would say the first peak or flare for her was. And so We started exploring specialists, so we went to a few different dermatologists. Some would kind of scale up or change, rotate different topical corticosteroids. Sometimes that would help, sometimes it didn't. We did oral corticosteroids. As a pharmacist, I'm knowing that that's not a long-term solution, but it did quiet the problem for a little bit. And then we found a dermatologist that was about three hours away who helped us find a contact dermatitis to one of our moisturizers. That also helped for a little bit. But at that time, we we were trying to get her to um, go to nursery school, I said preschool. And the eczema at that point was so bad that she was having to take pain medication. And she really only lasted about two to three days before we had to pull her out because they just weren't equipped to administer the lotion to help her with the pain. And for her to really be able to learn anything throughout the day, we were able to eventually get that under control. And so, you know, kind of going, going along, I'd say maybe moderate. And then once she got to age eight, we, we got back up to severe level again. And we tried everything. We tried going gluten-free, dairy-free. We tried all kinds of topical things like CBD. Um, Eventually we found a new doctor that had moved into the office complex where my father-in-law's office is. And we were lucky with him. I will tell you that one of the things that he said, I came in with my big bags of, of lotions, which is pretty typical in the eczema community. You'll see people with, with tons and tons of lotions and creams and all the things we've tried. And he said, The first thing you need to realize is that Hadley has a chronic condition and it's not going away. And my emotional reaction to that initially was that I felt angry a little bit because I was still in a bargaining phase in my mind where if you would just tell me what I needed to do to make it go away, I would do anything to make it go away to relieve her suffering but in the end that was really a gift to me because it it shifted our perspective and my perspective on what we needed to do to manage the condition and so we really we went back to basics and, and around this time because she's had so many medical interventions she her she started to develop anxiety pretty badly and she wasn't fully responding to those topical therapies and so after a few months the doctor asked me how I would rate her eczema. And I said, moderate. And he said, well, it's not moderate, it's severe. And you've you've gotten used to seeing it at this level. It's time for us to talk about systemics. And again, I had in my caregiver and mom brain, I did not want to do that because I knew knew what the options were. Um, And so he suggested methotrexate and immediately felt resistance within myself to doing it. I knew what the potential side effects, what the monitoring and things like that were. And I asked him if we could use Depilumab off label because the methotrexate would be off label. And he, he agreed to give it a try. I, I tried everything I I really could. Um, I tried to find her a clinical trial that three or four hours away, they were closed. I tried with our insurance company to see if we could do it off label and they denied the claim. And so I was really left with just that option that we had to use methotrexate. It is affordable and it was effective. I will say that, but we had to do blood draws to get it started. And we had to do monthly blood draws with her before we did it. I asked every pharmacist, nurse practitioner, physician that I worked with, if they would put their child on this medication. I I did not have one colleague that said yes. So that weighed heavily on me, but at the same time, no one was living with a child with that level of atopic dermatitis and suffering. And so we did go through with it, but because Hadley was experienced so much anxiety, so many shots, so many blood draws and things like that. At that time, she developed panic attacks. And I really had to advocate for her and say, again, this is outside of my primary area of practice, but this looks like a panic attack to me. Do you think that she needs counseling? And kind of the response that I got was that I think, sure, if you think it'll help, it's not going to hurt. So we pursued that for a few months and it did help a bit, but we ended up having to do medication that was something else that i advocated for and a lot of the response that i got when i explained how it felt when she was in these panic attacks for her and for me as well was that nobody really knew it was that bad and so so she she was able to start medication for the panic attacks and anxiety after that our doctor was able to work with the FDA compassionate care program and to get Hadley to start on dupilumab. So that was again, off label, but it was a game changer for us. Her skin felt different the next day. And of course that's at no cost to the patient. So that was great. And we did that about, I think about nine months. And then after that, I, I'm watching the news, I'm watching, you know, what's coming out. And I saw that the drug was approved for her age group. And at that time, then I asked the doctor, so what are we going to do now? And he said, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. However, the FDA Compassionate Care let us know that that program was ending because it was now approved. And um, our insurance company, we so we sent in a prescription to our insurance company that was then denied. The reason it was denied was because she did not meet the criteria for body surface area with eczema. And she also had not filled enough moderate to high potency topical corticosteroids in the last 12 months. That being because she's been treated with dupilumab and she's under control. And before that, she was treated with methotrexate. This part of the story to me is is really where My pharmacist training kicked in as well as my relationships because I was able to gather the medical records and pharmacy records pretty quickly within a couple of days that showed how many times she'd had oral and injectable corticosteroids as well as topical over the past two to three years. And it it was between 15 and 20 times just for the orals. And so that denial was approved and she has been on the medication since age 8 at this point point. and so she, she is 12 but that process was difficult to navigate and that process was definitely an emotional journey for our entire family and i think would be more difficult were i not a pharmacist and and knew how to navigate it so those are kind of the the big parts of our journey with with eczema and with atopic dermatitis.
0: Thank you so much for, for sharing all that. I, it sounds like it's been such a challenging journey for so many different reasons and so many different uh, uh, aspects have, have played into that. And again, really appreciate hearing all of that information. I think many managed care pharmacists work in roles where you know we don't necessarily speak with patients Every day, we don't, um, you know, manage the care of these patients directly. Every day, more so on a population level, and hearing stories like, you know, the one that you just shared, just really helps clarify, you know, the impact that this disease can have on on patients and and you know their caregivers. Just hearing things like that, your daughter wasn't able to attend daycare, that alone would, you know, disrupt all of the plans that you know many parents have, and you know you have to kind of kick in those parental instincts and switch to plan B if, um, you know, something like that happens. But then with a, a, a newborn at the same time, it must've been so challenging. And then also to hear of, you know, her, her developing panic attacks, that's so devastating, you know, of a diagnosis uh, for adults, but to, you know, have that for a child as well, must've been so challenging. So, so thank you for, for really sharing all that. I think it really personifies the struggle with this disorder. You mentioned a lot of really good points that I want to dive into a little bit deeper, but uh, the the first one I wanted to talk about a little bit more was one of the last things that you said about how your pharmacist, your clinician instincts kicked in and, and you were able to you know, navigate the healthcare system a little bit more easily than a lot of patients um, themselves can, and a lot of caregivers as well. And so, you know, I, I definitely appreciate the complexity of the healthcare system. I mean, I've struggled in in the past when I was on with different insurers, just trying to find the lab to go to. You know, to what was in network and what was out of network, and I was never able to figure out how much I was going to be paying for, you know, a lab draw. So, you know, just to put into perspective, that's just a one-time thing, uh, you know, once a year for for some routine checkups. But, you know, it sounds like you've had to navigate this healthcare system significantly more frequently. And so I would just, you know, love to hear from you. How would you say that your, your journey with the healthcare system has affected your family from a day-to-day perspective? Hmm,
1: that, that's a really good question. Um, I think that navigating the healthcare system and Hadley's medication because she's on a biologic and a high priced medication and that we rely on a specialty pharmacy to provide it for us. Right. And then we also rely on a manufacturer coupon and debit card. And, and that has changed since, since we got it. So at first it was FDA compassionate care. That was no cost to us, but we've got to go to the doctor and that relies on a clinical trial that goes through a university that and not relies on the doctor's unreimbursed time. I know all that. I don't know that a person who's not a clinician would know that. The next way that we got it was was navigating the prior authorization pathway that required gathering a lot of documentation. And even reading the denial letter is requires a pretty high reading level, let alone health literacy level. I don't know that someone who has not dealt with this before or has a clinician background would be able to do that as easily. And then now again, because it's a biologic and you've got that manufacturer coupon, anytime you hear there's a change, I'll just say that anytime you hear there's a change and you know that it's expensive, it causes a little bit of anxiety and a little bit of panic where you're like, what what's going to happen? Am I not going to be able to get the medicine? Am I not going to be able to pay for it? Am I not going to be able to am I going to have to pay for a, a large sum at one time? because our coupon, when it first began, you know that it has thirteen thousand dollars on it that That's a lot for any family to think about. And there are other things that I think about with her. So working on this other side of pharmacy, I've also worked with companies and helping them with their drug spending. and you can see their lists with certain drugs that cost more. My child will always be on that list. My child will always require medications that cost a lot. So she in her future will need a job that is a large corporation or has really great insurance benefits. She's not going to have the luxury to work wherever she wants to be self-employed, be an entrepreneur more than likely because she needs this medication. So those are the kind of things as a caregiver, as a parent, that I think of. That I don't really think most. I don't think it's normal for me to have to be thinking about that for a twelve-year-old. Is what I would say.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and and I think that that's uh, one of the challenges that often goes unspoken about, right? Is the what does this mean for the long term, especially when we're we're talking about patients with uh, pediatric patients, I should say. Um, and so, you know, we, we um, started uh, to get into the, the financials a little bit, and I would love to hear a little bit more about that. You know, how has this impacted your family financially? And then also from that perspective, one thing that you had mentioned as we, um, you know, chatted previously was that, that struggle that once you get the drug, you're still not done. Can you talk a little bit more about that as well?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, when we first talked, with our physician about if he would support dupilumab off label, so he agreed to write the prescription, right? But that doesn't mean that we can get the prescription filled. So one option would be for the patient or the patient's family to pay for the drug outright. So that, with it being a biologic, you know, and to price that out, that was out of reach for our family, but it would be out of reach for most most American families, I would say. Then the next kind of the next step there after that, after we went through um, FDA compassionate care, that that's nothing out of pocket for us, but and we got through the PA, then we, you really have to work with the office. And one thing I would say, if someone else is going through something similar, if your clinic is writing a lot of medications that are specialty medications and they handle the prior authorizations frequently, then you're going to have more luck with this and the patient will have to do less work. If, if the clinic does, you know, one or two a month, it's going to be more difficult and it's going to take longer. But um, luckily they, they did know what they were doing and they were able to work with the manufacturer to help us navigate that process. So we did not have to kind of see that sticker shock, but you do have to, the patient has to take responsibility to kind of go through that process, get all go, get all of it registered with the coupon or with the debit card, what have you. But every time that you see those letters come in or the changes to the program and how it applies to your deductible or your coinsurance in this case, it does cause like, we're good for now, but what is it going to be like next year? Because this is a long-term thing and what should we put on our HSA card? What should it be? And because of my background in healthcare, my husband is not in healthcare, um, but that's who the insurance is from. It does take a lot of time and planning and expertise to make sure that we've got all of our ducks in a row, so to speak, and make sure that that medication is going to be covered for her because that's our largest healthcare expense every year.
0: Absolutely, I, I completely understand that from the perspective of you know uh, what the median household income in the United States is versus the cost of some of these medications, it's a pretty substantial portion. Um, and, you know, as you alluded to, outside of, you know, manufacturer assistance, copay coupons, et cetera, and, and of course, insurance coverage when that that's uh, available for patients, it's impossible to see if, you know, individuals can afford these medications on their own sometimes. And so, I think the really important point that you brought up is is the how things change from one year to the next. And, you know, in order to combat the use of copay cards on non-preferred medications, payers will often institute programs of their own that will impact deductibles and, and how those copay cards will affect those deductibles. And then, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers will come up with programs to kind of bypass those payer instituted programs. And and that all just leaves, you know, a, a lot of confusion from the patient perspective. And that's something that um, absolutely has to be considered in benefit design is just making sure that, you know, patients pay a fair amount um, up front. And then, you know, a lot of these challenges can can be bypassed. But unfortunately, that's um, not so frequently the case. So we, we talked a little bit about the the financial considerations. I think you know, I'd love to, to get back to some of the personal implications as well. And and so earlier this year, the, the National Eczema Association and Impact Education, LLC, hosted a roundtable with payers and providers. And one thing that we heard was that it's important for payers to understand the patient journey. And, you know, one of the, the major points that came out of that discussion from my perspective was The importance of atopic dermatitis on the non dermatologic complications and comorbidities of this disease. And so, there was a 2018 study done that identified that atopic dermatitis has a similar impact on physical functioning as asthma and anxiety and depression, as well as a similar impact on mental health as diabetes and heart disease. And so I can only imagine how a dermatologic condition will impact a pediatric patient. And so I would love to, to hear a little bit more about you know, the impact that, that this has had on, on your daughter.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that that's such a good point. And that's one thing that I took away from being involved with Nia. I think I was experiencing a lot of these mental health effects, but I didn't have the words for it until I saw other people um, talking about it. And when we were in one of the sessions, they had one of those slides that you're referring to up there about the impact on anxiety, depression, and even caregivers, And the families, anxiety, depression, the financial costs, missed work. A lot of times caregivers, particularly mothers, drop out of the workforce to take care of a child with atopic dermatitis. And I would say it did affect my job because I changed jobs in 2014 after Hadley could not go to daycare. Uh, That wasn't the only reason, but it certainly was a factor in it. But I would say that one thing I would love to see when it comes to atopic dermatitis, is that mental health and atopic dermatitis become assessed and treated together and not bifurcated like we do in many conditions. Because you can see in in a child that when she's anxious, that she's scratching. Scratching causes disruption to the skin barrier. The skin barrier can become infected. And it's just an endless cycle. Endless it can lead to loneliness. It can lead to a lot of questions because eczema, of course, is just one of these chronic conditions that you wear on the outside. It's not something, you know, that is hidden. And so a lot of times people or children, whoever will, will make comments. Like when she was a baby, I would be pushing her in the cart around target. And I would have people say, what did you do to her? Or I've had, you know, other children make comments to her about scalp involvement. Do you have dandruff or are your hands okay? I've had someone say, you know, when she grows up, no one's going to want to hold hands with her because she's going to have scars all over her hands. You know, just things like that all the time that can really impact body image for, you know, tween and teen girls, but it, it could be for any, a child of any gender. And I think that incorporating body positivity from, from the very beginning where we're not saying things like don't scratch. That is, that is a neurological response to this condition, itching all the time and expecting someone not to scratch is impossible. And just acknowledging that for a caregiver, especially with no options, when you're seeing them during a flare and they come into a clinic, it's going to be very, very difficult for parents who are, missing sleep. Like I, I didn't know until I was involved with Nia that a lot of parents consider not having another child because they have a child with severe eczema. That That's huge. Like to hear how big of an impact that is. I would spend what, if you had named the dollar figure, I would have done anything I could do. Go fund me, you name it to make happily's eczema go away. But if you can find that community to feel less alone, like with any chronic disease, it makes such a difference. And I think if more providers and more more payers kind of see that as one part of the clinical plan, it would help patients so much and to believe their experience when they talk about it. To not be dismissive of symptoms is is so important.
0: That is absolutely heartbreaking to hear while also being incredibly eye-opening at the same time. I Very much appreciate you, you you know, sharing all of that candid um, experience that you've had, not only as the caretaker, but um, your daughter's experience as well. That's truly, truly heartbreaking to, to hear that. So as a mother and a pharmacist, what would you hope that healthcare professionals listening today, particularly on the managed care side, would take away from this conversation? And is there anything that you would like to see done differently? Hmm.
1: I think on the, on the managed care side, step therapy is, is really difficult for families because the newer therapies, though they are more expensive, are so much more effective and the older therapies, the side effects and potential limits on them are, are really big. They are cheaper and they can work short term, but for patients with severe eczema to require oral corticosteroids or topical corticosteroids for extended periods of time is not realistic. And I think the other thing I would, I would love to see, like I mentioned earlier, the patient communication to be in just public facing, easy to read language and maybe like checklists or something like that of what we need for the documents to be submitted for coverage. But there's so many things other than what's in the clinical record that affect patients' family with a disease like eczema, things like the lotions getting all over your freshly painted walls, affecting siblings, affecting um, like I said, sleep, relationships, body image, those kinds of things. And so the time to treatment, is so critical. It is, it's isolating and can affect so much more than meets the eye, even though it is, it is a visible disease. So I would say anything that we can do to make the newer and more effective treatments more available to patients is the best way to go for more severe cases.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very much appreciate that advice. And uh, you know, one of the struggles from the the payer perspective of course as always is just the population level care but one of the things that that you mentioned again just some of the those those aspects that we don't think about about the lotions all over the walls and earlier you said about how Parents uh, may choose not to have a second child because of their uh, child's disease. Like these are the sorts of things that we really need to keep in mind when we're making those population level decisions, is that there is a patient at the end of every one of those decisions. But one of the important take homes that I got from our conversation here today as well is that there's also a caregiver. At the end of that journey, and the, the impact of the disease is not just on the patient themselves, but also on the caregiver. And the last question I have for you today, Ashley, is you know, how has this changed your perspective on how you treat your patients?
1: Mm. <laughs> that's a really that's a really, really good one. I would say it has changed the way that I treat my patients because it has really opened up my eyes to when they walk into the room, that it's not just the 15 minutes or the five minute encounter that you have with the patient. There's so many things that walked into that room with them. And even if it's a difficult encounter, what, what made it difficult? So if you have a patient that, you know, it seems like they're being terse or it seems like they're being rude. This isn't about me and you, right? This is about the eczema. This is about or the diabetes, or the hypertension, or that I'm trying to quit smoking, and about something with my family, and about my transportation, and about my job, and all of these other things. And if I can make the patient feel seen and heard, and let them know that I'm on their side, we can get so much done together. And I think that once I've felt like that, the clinician has really earned my trust as a mom. And the ones that didn't, you know, I shut down pretty quickly. Like on my mom brain, on my caregiver brain, I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't the one for us. I'm moving on to the next one. And they could have, they may have been able to really help me. They may have been the best, who knows, dermatologist, immunologist, wherever, but we didn't establish that level of trust. I think it's made me more compassionate. I think it's made me more empathetic. And it's certainly as a mother, I would say it's changed the way that we parent because we are all, we center mental health and we center talking about our feelings because we've really had to with this diagnosis of anxiety and we've had to advocate for it. And so, you know, we're like, are you feeling sad or are you feeling angry? What do you think that's about? And I hope that that will lead to and the next generation being more emotionally aware emotionally intelligent and and making a difference as they as they grow
0: thank you so much for for that and uh completely agree i think you know the the relationship between the patient and the provider is something sacred that uh, has to be built over time. And, uh, you know, I think the way that you phrased it is perfect. So thank you, Ashley, so much for for sharing all your thoughts today on how we can improve the quality of care for these patients uh, with atopic dermatitis. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I would also just one last time like to thank our sponsors, Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, for their support of this educational activity So thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.